going to kind of just get into some of the notes that I took today and um, might be a little bit more of a lengthy uh, introduction for me than I normally do on these chats, but I've got <laughs> probably 12 or 13 pages of handwritten notes here. So I'll kind of do like an overview. Um, obviously, I didn't live tweet everything today. Apologize for that. I was just uh, wanted to get in the courtroom. I wanted to kind of get eyes on the jury and uh, kind of take temperature in there. And, and also, my hands are pretty sore. So uh, it is what it is. Uh, tomorrow, I'm going to try to live tweet as much as I can. Um, obviously, Lick Blau is going to be on the stand tomorrow. Um, I think they're going to try to get to Tom Grasso tomorrow as well, which is going to be really interesting testimony. And then there's a few character witnesses, and apparently that's it. So the defense will rest after that. Um, I don't expect Sussman to testify based on kind of the, the mood in the courtroom, but um, you know, closing arguments are tentatively scheduled for Friday. So this is going to be wrapping up really soon here. Um, so that's going to be, you know, it'll be interesting. We might have a verdict on Friday. Um, so a few notes. I mean, obviously I was in the courtroom. I, I saw the jury today. Um, not going to violate any restrictions about like identifying them or anything. I would say this, I mean, the jury was very attentive. Um, you know, they were, especially early in the day, they were definitely taking notes, which I, I, uh, appreciated. I thought that was good to see. Um, you know, they, they definitely perked up a, a few, few times today and, in you know, key moments. I mean, I, they were definitely paying attention, which, which is good. The only time that I saw the jury look a little bit bored was on the cross-examination by the defense, um, kind of in the middle of the day. And um, it was specifically like a portion of the cross-examination that was really similar to the cross-examination and what they were kind of talking about yesterday. They were covering the same text messages and emails. And, and at that point, um, the jury did look a little bit bored. But other than that, I mean, they, they did, definitely were paying attention today. Uh, so that that's good. Um, so obviously we started off with Trisha Anderson. Um, she she didn't remember anything. Uh, so literally the direct was really really short. Um, they basically just used her and put her on the witness stand to introduce her notes, um, which said that Sussman was coming there not on behalf of client. And because the direct was so limited, and she said she didn't remember any, anything. Um, the cross-examination wasn't especially long. So um, that went pretty fast. And then uh, I, guess there are, I guess there are a few points here. So maybe, maybe I shouldn't jump ahead, right? Um, she did not know that Sussman represented the DNC. I thought that was notable. I wrote that down. Uh, there was an introduction of an exhibit where there's a June 16th email uh, in 2016 that uh, there's there a meeting uh, with, you know, uh, Sean Henry of CrowdStrike, Amy Dacey, and then Trisha was apparently on that email as well. So she did, she did in effect, actually know that he represented the DNC, um, which has kind of been like a defense strategy. They want to they wanna get witnesses to say, yeah, you knew that he worked for the DNC. And then they're trying to conflate that and kind of misdirect the jury a little bit in that um, because these FBI people knew that he was involved with the DNC matters, that they should have known that he represented the DNC and the Alpha stuff. And that, I mean, <laughs> I understand the, the theory that they're pursuing there, but it's also why this lie is material, because that's why 
Sussman lied. That's why he said he wasn't representing the client, so that they didn't associate him with the DNC. So um, it cuts both ways, and I don't know why they keep uh, hammering on that point, but they, they certainly do. Um, let's see here. Uh, it was notable also in her testimony on, on cross-examination. She noted that um, a certain awareness that McCabe and Comey were involved with the decision or the push to have the New York Times hold up on the article about the Alpha Bank allegations. I thought that was pretty interesting that McCabe and Comey were, were named specifically. Um, and then we kind of got into Curtis Hyde. So Curtis Hyde, you know, worked for the FBI for 16 years. Um, they apparently are investigating Curtis Hyde. We saw that with a couple other agents that have been on the witness stand. Um, and there's this administrative inquiry that's still in progress from the FBI uh, for his role in withholding exculpatory information. And we, we know through other means that it's related to the Papadopoulos case and withholding of consensually monitored uh, communications that were exculpatory for Papadopoulos. And we already knew about that, but um, it is... I mean, I guess it's good that he is under investigation for that, and it's it's still open. So maybe there'll be some accountability there. Um, that kind of played into the defense strategy, which is they are ripping to pieces the FBI. I mean, they're going scorched earth, earth with it, which is what you would expect with a defense. Um, and they're not holding back. So that's, that's good. I think the defense is doing an effective job in painting the FBI as incompetent, but I don't know if they've effectively attacked the, uh, the pillars of the, in, the indictment, the, of the false statement charge. I mean, Sussman lied. They really can't dispute that anymore. And then is the lie material? And they have, it, they have played around and um, taken pieces away of that at times, but I, I don't think too much of it has actually stuck. So... Um, they are doing an effective job of ripping the FBI apart and um, cross-examining cross -examining witnesses and making them seem pretty silly. But as far as the, the actual lie that Sussman did, I mean, I, I don't know how much they're actually scoring. I, I think, you know, I think Durham had a really good day today. So uh, let's see here. Try not to hit every point that I wrote down. Uh, let's see. Just going to flip through these pages here. Yeah, obviously a subject of the OIG investigation. Um, they, they had a, a pretty interesting line about the uh, mid-year exam where uh, apparently data was brought forward by somebody that had a political, political interest and the FBI, instead of following up with that source, decided not to. And of course the mid-year exam related to Hillary Clinton's emails. And because this person, this source apparently had a political bias, they decided not to receive that information, not to pursue it. And Heidi on the stand said, you know, obviously that would be a problem if there was an inconsistency. And had we known that the source had political motivations, then that would have been a, a, a problem that they might have treated it a different way um, or they would have expected to treat it similarly to that. So I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting, pretty powerful. Um, 
they did get into the EC a little bit, which kind of tied in with Allison Sands yesterday. Uh, basically, you know, Heidi didn't look all that good. I mean, um, you know, he was the supervisor of Allison Sands as a brand new case agent. And he said, like, yeah, we gave this highly sensitive case to Allison Sands, who had only been with the FBI as a special agent for a few months. And she was the lead case agent on this case. And he confirmed that today. And he had her draft the opening uh, EC and the closing EC. And there was incorrect information on it. And him, as her supervisor, did not review it and forwarded it on and never corrected it. So um, there's a whole conflation issue with Rodney Joffe bringing the information to the FBI through Grasso and then also Sussman bringing the information through Baker. And when they opened this investigation, they wrote in the memo that uh, they basically alluded to Joffe more than anything. They, they called it a Department of Justice referral, which, of course, is not true. Um, and I think the defense had a good point off of that in that people down the road, like the field agents, would look at this opening EC and say, okay, well, this is about uh, the Joffe information. So if they didn't even know about what Sussman brought, how can his lie be material? If they thought they were just working off the Joffe information, um, I think that was a good point for the defense today. Let's see. Uh, there are a couple dates. I thought these were important to, to write down. So Grasso sent an email to Dan Wiersbicki. hope I pronounced that right. And he, the subject of it was anonymous reporting on DNS data. This was on October 2nd. And in this email, he wrote, I don't have many details. And um, in another section, I, I wrote down, he said, an anonymous reporter requested uh, or provided information to the FBI. And he, you know, Grasso wrote in this memo that there was an anonymous reporter that was involved with this. Obviously, that's very odd. But then two days later, so that was October 2nd, two days later on October 4th, he sent an email to Allison Sands. And by this time, we know Allison Sands was trying to interview Dave Dagan. And uh, she was earnestly trying to do her job. And she was making arrangements to have that interview with David Dagan. And so Grasso, on October 4th, sent an email to Sands, and he referenced a subject matter expert. He didn't go into detail, but I have a strong suspicion that's Joffe as well. And uh, <laughs> basically, they're, you know, everywhere they turn, in all these different avenues where the source and the information flows are, are coming into the FBI, it's Rodney Joffe, or it's somebody that is connected to Rodney Joffe. And there are, there's a handful now. I mean, there's several different avenues that they were trying to feed this information in. Uh, let's see here. Try not to do, like, long openings or whatever, but figured I have all these notes. I might as well kind of go through these. Uh, so let me cover this, and then, then I'll open it up. I do have a lot more notes, but... Uh, we can cover the, well, Jared Novick was pretty interesting. I'll skip Novick. We can talk about that later. Uh, the business structures. I thought this was pretty interesting. Obviously, I mean, if you've been following Full Nelson, he's had a whole body of research on this. 
Um, I used to have research on my old account. I know Stephen McIntyre did a few posts as well. Um, I did some deep dives back in the day. I wish I still had access to that to those posts. Um, and then I know Fool had a, a really interesting tweet a couple weeks ago where he thought Jared Novick might be the CEO of Packet, um, I think he said, which wasn't quite right, but he, he sure wasn't far off. So um, starting with uh, a little bit of background, Main Nerve was the original company, which was started by Victor Oppelman, and Rodney Joffe had shares in that company. Um, so I have court records that I've obtained when things kind of went south with Main Nerve. And out of Main Nerve spun off Bostrom Holdings and a company called Packet Interrogation, which was Joffe's idea. And that was later renamed, as I understand, to Packet Forensics. So then out of Packet Forensics, there was a spinoff of a company called Literal Ventures. Um, and Literal Ventures, uh, board of directors and their ownership consists of Raymond Salino, uh, Victor Oppelman, and Rodney Joffe. So uh, if you've been following this corner for a while, obviously you know who Raymond, uh, or excuse me, Rodney Joffe is. Raymond Salino is a name you would also know. So we've talked about Salino a great deal. He's obviously named in public reporting around the global resource systems and the transfer of a huge number of IP addresses on the inauguration day uh, for Joe Biden. Um, we, do, we still have open questions on that. He was also named in recent reporting for measurement systems where uh, they were surreptitiously collecting data on Google Apps and then selling that data to the Department of Defense. So he was involved in that as well. Um, so and then the other person is Victor Oppelman, and, and I just kind of noted, like, he was involved with uh, Bostrom Holdings um, and, and a lot of businesses. And, and as we'll get into this, I mean, there's, they're all interconnected. And what Novick described as they... They start a new company anytime there's like a new block or a niche of data that they can then market. So the idea with Zetalytics and Bitvoyant was that they could market that specifically to uh, corporate clients. That was the motive for those two entities. Now, I, I don't know. I, I still have some questions on that. But um, so, so the setup was... Raymond Salina was the business manager of Bitvoyant, and then Jared Novick was the CEO. But ultimately, I mean, he's really answering to the board of directors, which is Rodney Joffe, Raymond Salino, and Victor Oppelman. He was a minority shareholder as CEO. Um, Zetalytics, which is um, April Lorenzen's firm, is a, under a very similar setup. So Zetalytics was spun out of Literal Ventures as well. Headed up by April Lorenzen, as I said. Raymond Salino is the manager there. And, of course, we know uh, April Lorenzen is originator one in the, in the indictment um, of Michael Sussman. So, um, obviously, there's a whole lot of interconnected stuff going on here. I, I could get into Zach Canner for, you know, a couple hours. Um, so... Let's see what else I have here. Obviously, I mean, there's some key points out of Novick today. He said, you know, it was clearly opposition research. I thought that was really important. Um, he did a, a lot of good background and stuff. And then, you know, I wasn't sure how relevant it was going to be, but the, the prosecution did get a point in, which is at the very end, they asked him, you know, who, do, who was your, what was your understanding of the ultimate client of this data? And he said a lawyer connected to the DNC. And 
right as he was saying that, the defense jumped up and, and objected to it, and it was sustained, but it still got in. Um, so the jury heard it. They can't unhear it. Um, so they, they know what was going on. So I thought that was good. Um, let's see here. Yeah, and then this list of Trump associates that um, Novik mentioned. There's five to seven individuals on it. Um, Sergey Milian is on there. Carter Page is on there. And Richard Byrd is on there. And we didn't get to see who else was on there, but it, it would be really interesting to know. So um, he had some really strong moments where he created this analogy where, um, like, if you were a company that had satellites and you were doing, like, a survey, a survey of uh, uh, floodplains um, and you had a contract to do that, you would say, okay, that's well and good. And that's, you know, a public service or, or working for the government. That's fine. But then if you took those satellites, and he, this is an analogy you said, it'd be like if you took those satellites and then pointed them in your backyard and spied on someone. And I thought that was really, really strong. And I don't know if that was prompted or, or, or what or planned out, but that was, that was good. Um, so I thought that was a key point for him as well. Uh, there's a little bit made of like him going back and forth with the uh, – the defense, Bosworth in particular, I didn't make much of it. Um, it wasn't that big a deal. Uh, the whole thing about the 302, it was just a misunderstanding. It was actually cleaned up pretty well, and it, it didn't play all that well or that badly about the selectors. So anyway, I rambled on for a little bit, but um, had a bunch of notes, and I kind of wanted to make some value of them. So um, see some people in here. I'm going to add you all as speaker. housekeeping items here oops hey king hi ship Mansoor, cody i'm gonna add you as well yeah i mean if you guys have any uh any takeaways or any anything you want to share go ahead i have some questions since you were there eyeballing everything yeah do you think the government got across to the jury that this secret source, this confidential, the CHS, who will not be named, is the is Jaffe, the, the same person who produced Sussman's data. Yes, I think they did make that, they made that very clear. Um, it is Rodney Jaffe that is both the source, the anonymous source, they, they call it connected to Grasso, and he is the person that prompted Sussman to, to bring the information. So they did make that, that point explicitly. There was a question specific to that today, too. So I, I would anticipate that that's going to be featured in the uh, closing argument. Uh, Ship, you, maybe you can chime in. But that, you know, put aside Clinton and politics and DNC. If you're if Sussman's going into the FBI hiding the fact that a existing CHS has produced the information he's giving to Baker uh, and not telling Baker, oh, by the way, this is coming from uh, somebody who's already a CHS and he'd rather not go to his regular handler. Uh, 
And then that same CHS is going to the regular handler and trying to amplify what Sussman has already given and, and answer questions to give it some more credit. That is, I mean, that's, I can't think of anything more damning. Yeah. Uh, Ship, I, I don't know if you have any comments on that. Um, uh, I was having I do want I was to... having some technical problems, so I couldn't hear what uh, everybody was saying. I had to leave the spaces and then come back in. So let me listen for a few minutes and see where we're at. Okay. Well, King, I, I kind of want to pose this to you because right at the end of the day, they finally brought up the actual closing, or, or excuse me, the, the next witness, which is was supposed to be a summary witness, which is actually a member of the Durham prosecution team, as I understand it. And uh, as the judge actually got into it, I was like, yeah, that is pretty weird. They basically want to have a member of the prosecution team up there uh, summarizing a bunch of data, and they're going to do it by PowerPoint. And apparently it's like 130 slides or something like that. Um, but the judge wasn't all that happy about having like a member of the prosecution up there just summarizing like basically closing twice like it's like a cl closing summary and then and then later on they're obviously going to have a shot to do closing so i don't know if you have thoughts on that yeah i i had commented on that um <laughs> online when i saw that one of the uh one of the people that was live tweeting mentioned that and and i my reaction and 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 the judge's reaction that nobody had given him any indication that this is what the government intended to do i can't that shocks me when you plan on doing something like that you always give a heads up to the court because the court can say well, what are these are there 100 exhibits oh yeah your honor there are 100 exhibits so so these are 100 exhibits that the jury can read during deliberations they're going to have them all yes they're going to have them all then why are we going to waste time sitting here in court with you reading them to the jury they're going to be able to read them themselves and 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 I would I would have never just assumed that you could get away with doing this at the end of the case. Should have been doing this stuff with agents all the way through. This is oftentimes, you know, a way you want to sort of uh, really launch your case is is you get a, a you get a you get the agreement from the defense that you know a lot of exhibits are going to come in without objection. And so you get those exhibits pre-admitted before the trial starts. And, and so you don't need witnesses to identify them and lay a foundation and then ask that they be admitted, that they're already admitted. And then you could use those with witnesses as you go along. And you might want to use your case agent and go through 30 or 40 of them that have already been admitted and have the agent explain what they are and why they're important. To save all of that for the last witness and think you can get away with it is is shocking to me. Because as I read the, the Twitter feed, as soon as uh, Dee Flippus or whoever said that was what they intended to do, the defense objected. Which is exactly what I would do. It's like, what's the point of that? If they're admitted exhibits, then they're in evidence. The jury can read them. Why do we need a narrator? Somebody who's not a witness to anything to sit up in the witness stand and for hours just narrate exhibits. Well, and I think as they kind of got into this, there are a fair number of ex exhibits that are already in evidence, but 
the judge really didn't like the fact that there was going to be new evidence and new exhibits presented through this. Um, I mean, in some limited form, the judge was okay with it, but to have a member of the prosecution team up there introducing new evidence and new exhibits, um, what, and the judge made the, the same comment you did. He, he said, you know, you could have been introducing this with witnesses throughout the trial. Um, but it, it sounds like he is going to let it happen or go forward in some capacity. And hopefully it doesn't take too long. So I want to hear Lickblau and uh, hopefully Grasso before I get out of there. So I, I am getting out of there t- tomorrow. So. Yeah, well, as I, as I read the, the Twitter feed, the judge told the, told the two sides to get together and try to narrow it down. So, so in, in other words, you know, what, what you could imagine in here are things that you don't need a witness. So, for example, an email from Sussman. You know, that's, an, that's a statement by a party opponent. You don't need a witness to admit it. It's going to come in. It gets marked. It gets admitted. You could do those in advance of the trial because there's no basis to keep them out. So you could have 20 of those that the jury hasn't seen yet because there was no witness who needed to comment on them for any particular reason. And so they're going to have, you know, I guess it's going to be a paralegal. I would always do this with a case agent, you know, with, you know, the, the person that's a professional witness that's trained to do this. And you would just go through them one at a time. Do you recognize Exhibit 14? You know, it, it would describe it. It's an email dated, you know, June 13th, 2016, <clears throat> from Michael Sussman to Mark Elias. And what's it say? And then you can read it, you know? And, and you can do those one at a time, but you do it with a case agent, do it with a witness. You don't like save them all up to the end and say, now let us take, you know, three hours of your time while we read to you. Oops. I think my audio was off there a little bit. Um, but yeah, I... I I mean, the judge kind of made all the same points you did. <laughs> I, I agree with uh, Shep, and if I'm the defense, I I would argue that uh, basically what prosecution is trying to get away with is uh, essentially two closing arguments when procedurally they only get one. Uh, they're, they're getting a somebody is affiliated with the law firm to put a spin on by reading portions of selected exhibits uh, as if you're arguing to the jury. Uh, there is one way that the rules of evidence allow you to do something like this. Uh, and maybe this is what they have in mind uh, as opposed to what, what we've been discussing. There is such a thing as... Um, creating a summary out of voluminous documents or voluminous, uh, yeah, voluminous documents and voluminous data. Uh, and if, if what Durham has in mind is a summary, let's say you have a pile of 200 emails and you want to make a summary of how many, how many of those are addressed to uh, members of the press and how many of those mention the FBI investigation that's ongoing? You can you can create a summary like that, make a one PowerPoint slide that shows so many letters or so many emails, and of those, this percent talks about the ongoing investigation, 
and this percent says something else. That that that's a summary. It's perfectly accept, acceptable, so long as you have the original uh, uh, the the emails that you that are that make up the uh, or support the summary there in the uh, courtroom for anybody to question the witness about in detail. Uh, that may be what they're trying to do. If, if on the other hand, they're trying to pile up a bunch of uh, uh, documents either in already in evidence or to be entered into evidence and read portions as if you're arguing to the jury, um, that's, I've never heard that done. And if I were the defense, I would jump up and down and say, that's, that's beyond the rules. Oops, sorry. I was just uh, flipping through my notes here. There's a couple couple other points I had, and uh, uh, I was just about to tweet this out. But I think at one point today, and I was trying to find uh, who was on the stand, but um, you know, there's a text message that was up there, and it said, "We are going to speak to David Dagan." And I believe this was Allison Sands, and I, I don't recall who the other party was. And uh, text said, "We are going to speak to David Dagan," and then. You know, as further testimony has come out, basically FBI headquarters told them absolutely not. Um, and Heidi was up there, and he said the FBI told us not investigating this was not an option. And you know, we have a bunch of testimony now and some text messages where you know the FBI headquarters has put a lot of pressure to put the the pedal down on this thing, and it stinks. And I, I tell you what, I. I have been moving away from the idea of further indictments for the FBI. Um, I, I have swung back hard. I, I sat through the trial today um, and yesterday. I, I do not see a, a path where there's not at least a couple more people that are indicted with the FBI. I, I'm not going to make predictions on who or, or what, but there's just too many characters and there's too many investigations that are apparently open. I have the sense that it's a fair number. And uh, I, I think he's going to get at least one of them. And, you know, we'll see, we'll see what that, that looks like. But, you know, the, the defense is obviously, you know, doing their job and they're attacking the FBI. And, and you know what? I, you know, I see something happening. Did you get any sense uh, from the evidence? That someone in the FBI, one or more agents or upper-level people, understood that Jaffe was feeding this information or this this investigation from two different sides, as a CHS and as Sussman's source, and not telling anybody. Was anybody on the inside aware of that? Yes. I mean, Heidi was up there and he was asked about that um, specifically uh, as this new confidential human source, which is not Joffe, came to, I don't think it's Joffe, came to the FBI with new information in early October. And I think this is Elgin Camp, um, as people have alluded to in a 302 that we have. Um, but regardless, it, he testified pretty broadly in that um, he he looked at the information from Rodney Joffe uh, from Sussman, 
from tea leaves. And he came to the conclusion by early October, as, as well as others did, that there's a, a strong likelihood that they were all connected. And then the defense got up there and they're like, well, David Dagan was offering to, to meet with you to discuss it. Um, and obviously Grasso had these sources and you didn't go interview him. So it, it's like a, a rock and a hard place situation. But, you know, looking through it all, it's like there's a, a real earnest effort by somebody at the FBI not to go interview them and not get the answers that the field agents are are at a loss for. The field agents are like, this is the most, this is the next logical step. Like not doing this doesn't make any sense. And FBI headquarters is putting the brakes on them um, in a, a very brazen way. I, I mean, this, this sounds highly irregular. The FBI agents on the stand that I've seen are confused by it. And, you know, you look at like Gaynor and Heidi, who are apparently under criminal investigation um, themselves. You know, I, I don't know what their understanding was with the FBI leadership, um, but I, I don't think they're the brains of this. I mean, they didn't, they didn't come up with a plan to, you know, keep things open and you know, not go talk to the source. I, I believe them when they say FBI headquarters uh, was really excited about this. I believe them when they say FBI headquarters was telling us not to go interview the sources and, uh, yeah, I, I'm. I would expect more indictments. I mean, I, I you know, I, there's something that feels really, really wrong. Do you have any sense that uh, the two witnesses who are under investigation are be, are under investigation because somebody in the FBI is trying to intimidate them or affect their testimony? No, I, I don't. Well, let me say Heidi. No, I don't. I didn't get that sense. Gainer actually. Yeah, a little bit. Um, because they, they're really effective on cross-examination for Gainer where his first interview, which was October, 2020, he get and he, he has subscribed it to, um, not having the chance to review his notes, which I, I somewhat believed, but he was also acting as like the gatekeeper uh, he was the one interfacing with FBI headquarters personnel and then telling the field agents like, no, um, you can't, you can't go interview Dave, David Dagan or, you know, he was saying, well, I'll talk to the FBI headquarters about this and that. Um, I think he knows more than he testified to, um, whether it's Mafa or Pianca, uh, that he was talking to. Um, I think he, he does know a little bit more and I, I think he was, I think he has kind of evolved in his testimony with special counsel Durham. And I think he has become a little bit more favorable to the government. So that is a little bit. Which one? Uh, Gaynor. But what I'm asking is if, if any of these, if one, are these investigations still open and two, are they being run not by Durham, but by somebody inside, you know, legacy yeah. FBI who is doing their best to shut down Durham. Yeah. So I, I'm not. I, can I that. interject right there? I have a question on this too. Same question, uh, specifically about the investigation into Heidi. Um, 
if my understanding is correct, that exculpatory information that was withheld from the FISA was detailed and I think known like by the Horowitz report. Yeah. I think. So like what the hell? Why is he still now under investigation, not through Durham? Is it because it's being on hold because of Durham? That's the only thing I can even imagine that would make it take that long. Yeah, so there's a, a couple of things going on. Um, at some point, there was reporting, and I, I don't recall the date of it, that the FBI was conducting an inquiry and Durham had asked them to stop because he didn't want uh, potential witnesses to be fired by the FBI when, um, because it would just make it more available to gather evidence, I, I assume. Uh, so we, at some point, Durham asked them to hold. But you know, we also saw some of the filings in the Sussman case, I think it was probably January to February, where he said, you know, Sussman is still under criminal investigation. And, you know, somewhere around that same time frame, he was saying, you know, we, we just found new evidence, right? And he, he said, well, we went back to the FBI and had them search the other spelling of his name was one point. And then he said, you know, uh, he's on a criminal investigation. We're continuing to develop information. And he said something to the effect of um, evidence may come from the FBI's administrative inquiry or, or something to that effect. So this has been out there, um, but I, I don't know what to make of it. I don't know if Durham's relying on the FBI internal investigation to uh, create more evidence for him. I don't know if it means now that they are investigating this, that Durham's done with that. Uh, I mean, either way, yeah, you could speculate a lot. lot. I don't know. Seems like a long time. Um, There are probably issues involving potential whistleblower claims. If, if what Durham has from him is information that calls into question decision-making by his superiors, and now it's being visited upon him that he's the subject of an internal, whether, you know, administrative or criminal investigation for, you know, other misconduct, then, you know, that, that, that creates a host of issues, um, with respect to, you know, his job status. And all of those would be placed on hold until he provided whatever information, testimony, evidence, whatever, to Durham in the criminal case. Once his, once his work, so to speak, is done there, then they will go back and resurrect the administrative inquiry. I, don't, I, I suspect he's not under criminal investigation. I suspect he's under an OPR investigation for withholding yeah. whatever it was he withheld or is alleged to have withheld you know he i think he's he, his claim is either he didn't withhold it or or it was um and, and that's it wasn't produced or forwarded or or whatever um but that can all be that that will all be resumed once his work with durham is done but because he is providing information that is, you know, implicates uh, supervisors, you know, that sort of required halting the administrative proceeding by the FBI against him. Now, I read a headline today. I didn't read the article, but that the uh, today or yesterday that the FBI has opened up a 
investigation or a view of misconduct, malfeasance within the agency related to Russiagate and the way they handled the investigation. And first thing that popped in my mind was why now? Wait, like this, like t- yesterday? Today, yesterday, it was just, I, I didn't read the article. It was a headline. Now, of a new inquiry? It, it, it sounded like a new inquiry. Well, you know, it, it, you know, Durham's criminal investigation is closely held. You know, what Durham has learned through grand jury is not necessarily something that would be shared with FBI leadership. So some of this stuff they're hearing might be the first time they've heard it. At least, you know, the current Chris Ray on down administration, you know, things that were done by people, you know, in the past before Chris Ray and others were in their current positions. And, and now that this information has come out in, you know, testimony or evidence, there's a basis to initiate these investigations, maybe that, you know, didn't exist to the same level at least was not known previously because what Durham, nobody had looked before. Nobody was, nobody was motivated to look before Barr charged Durham with looking. You had, that's not true. You had the first, the Nunez report, and then you had the Horowitz report. But Horowitz was just, Horowitz targeted the Page FISA and that was it. It was a four FISA's investigation. It was the original FISA and the and the renewals, and that was all Horowitz looked at. And that was and that, no, he and that at, was forwarded on. You know, he forwarded it to OPR uh, as as required. What happened to it at that point? You know, I don't know. I mean, how how far after Horowitz filed that report did Barr name Durham? I, I don't think it was a year. It was less than a year. So we don't know what might have been started, um, you know, internally. You know, the the IG doesn't. Uh, the IG doesn't. Okay, so you got three. You got a three-headed monster here. You got the inspections division within the bureau. Then you've got OPR within the bureau, and you've got the DOJ IG just outside the bureau. They all kind of do the same kind of reviews. In slightly different jurisdictions, slightly different tools, but they're all kind of looking for the same violations of law or violations of policy. Um, and then those get referred where appropriate to criminal side prosecutors in DOJ. No, but I had not got you had the Horowitz report, then you had the Mueller report debunking all of it, and then you had the FISA court uh, actually rescinding two of their uh, warrant orders, two out of four, as to Carter Page, because of no probable cause. I'm I'm 100% confident that there is an open investigation in, in, in an internal review, maybe even a criminal referral, dealing with the FISA the Carter Page FISA and the people that were involved. I'm, I'm, I'm 100% confident, but it's on hold. It's on hold until Durham is done with the criminal case. 
Right. Guys, and, I, but, but you have guys, this, I, this, new, me, uh, this new Sorry. Thing. Let me go ahead and interject here real quick because it, it bears right on the discussion you guys are having, and then I'll, I'll give it right back to you guys. So Heidi was up on the stand, and he said October 29th, 2018, he was interviewed by the OIG, the Inspector General. And in that interview is the first time that he was made aware that there was errors in the opening electronic communication related to this Alpha Bank matter. So Durham interviewed him for the first time in November 2019, so about a year later. And then uh, they connected again in June, I'm sorry, June 2020. And then they met June 16th and did another interview um, or some prep work perhaps because June 17th, 2021, Heidi was put in a grand jury and gave grand jury testimony. So, I mean, the crux of it is the OIG did interview him and they did know about some of these errors back in 2018. Now, Heidi was up on the stand and he was asked about this. The investigation into him is still open and it bears directly on the FISA um, uh, uh, process that Ship was just talking about because he withheld exculpatory information from somebody that was a subject to the investigation. And ultimately, that bears on a, a FISA application is what he said. Now, I don't know exactly the path between Papadopoulos and Carter Page, but he said explicitly he was informed that it relates to a FISA application that was filed. So... Uh, I'll hand it back to you guys, but I, I wanted to drop that in there a little bit. Yeah, King, King, King I think the what the headline you read, and, and we're just guessing because I haven't read it either, but it probably has to do with Alpha Bank. A lot of these other problems, you're right, were well-documented, well-established, had been the subject of inquiry. But some of the stuff surrounding the Alpha Bank machinations inside the FBI were largely unknown until they've started to come out of this trial. That could make sense, yes. I'll say that. Hey, can I ask you attorneys a, a question? Um, I think both of you were in some kind of agreement that that you said it might have been likely to see a superseded indictment from Durham on the basis of perhaps alleging like a wider conspiracy that he kind of spelled out in the, the speaking indictments. Um, since that didn't happen, um, what do you make of that? Um, do you still think that's something that he has intended for trial versus report? purposes um or was he do you really think durham would partake on a kind of like a, a media campaign so to speak you know just to just to i know some people think that he was or have suggested that he was literally just using the opportunity to air some of this information um which do you, which do you think, um, on either side of that seesaw? Trial purpose or just media purpose? Well, I think the 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 fact that you know, 
<clears throat> excuse me, the fact that weighs against him going with a broader conspiratorial indictment in this case, and, and, and probably the reason he chose not to, even though he seems to have had, you know, the evidence and the and, and to have done so, is it would have been in the District of Columbia. And I don't think he has any interest in trying to prove this conspiracy in the District of Columbia. And so he didn't do it in this case because this particular case could only be brought in the District of Columbia because that's where Sussman made his misrepresentation. Um, I, I think, do they have another case already planned and ready to go, you know, outside the District of Columbia? You know, either the either in New York, which is kind of one place it's been suggested, or the Eastern District of Virginia? Yeah, it's hard to know. Um, there are actors and things happening in other places beyond Washington, D.C. that would provide venue for another indictment of other individuals in a broader conspiracy that seems to, you know, for which evidence seems to exist. Um I, I just I'm I'm kind of at a loss as to whether he's actually going to do that or not. I, you know, going after the FBI officials, you know, something that I have seized on a long time ago, and I continue to think that it's significant, is when he paused and stopped. Apparently, when they were reporting that he was ready to file, and then he didn't in in July and August of 2020 before the election. And, and what had happened in that time frame was that interview of um, Special Agent William Barnett, who was the, the Crossfire Razor, the Flynn case agent, and was very critical of the decision making and, you know, and called it all out as a political witch hunt, all about getting Trump. And there, it, none of it had any substance. And, and, and to me, and what, what was important about Barnett is he crossed the divide between pre-special counsel and post-special counsel. Barnett was involved in both. And, and remember, Barnett was the one that Peter Strzok, you know, basically begged him to stay involved. Uh, and, and I think he only stayed involved at the request of, uh, of um, Brandon Van Grack, who was somebody he'd worked with and liked. Um, but, you know, the, the issues raised... I've just always been intrigued by this idea that Durham is actually looking at something that stretches beyond the appointment of the special counsel and activities and conduct by members of the special counsel. Now we could factor into this everything that would have been known about by the special counsel about Alpha Bank and, and those allegations. And, and what, what, if anything, did they do with them? Maybe nothing. But going back to when you say after Barnett, you say he was perhaps going to file some indictments in the summer of 2020, but you think he was influenced by Barnett and then what, reassessed the whole case? Well, I, I think there was a lot of reporting that he was ready to file and that, you know, they were approaching that 90 day window before the election. And it's like, if he was going to act, he needed to act before August and not get into that 90-day window where there's not supposed to be any, you know, meaningful legal action that might uh, might uh, uh, implicate the the election. 
Um, and and then he invited Kleinsmith. Yeah, but but ultimately, he, but ultimately he didn't. Durham didn't act. That wasn't you know really what people were expecting. And and Durham didn't yeah. do anything. And now you know you know eighteen months, nineteen twenty months has passed, and all we and we've got Denchenko, which is significant, and and we've gotten this Sussman case. But nothing that seems consistent with the Barnett interview. Well, but the Barnett interview, you know, was a lot about Crossfire Razor. It was a lot about the pursuit of, of Flynn. It was, you know, critical of the attitude and, and decision making of the special counsel. Well, that doesn't start until May of 2017 and, and continues on for a long period of time. So you know, in terms of the window of the statute of limitations, if you begin to drag this into the time frame of the special counsel, you're into late 2022 and 2023 before you start running up against statute of limitations concerns. Right. Yeah. How far back is there any limit to reach back? Um, you know, like say if he, if he starts a special counsel, mid to late special counsel, can he reach back into Crossfire? Um, you know, it's all the stuff originated there, and some of the guys are the same players. Yeah, well, the, uh, well that's really. it. You have to show a continuing conspiracy, and people can come and go. People can join an existing conspiracy. And that would sort of be the theory here, is that there's a conspiracy within the FBI among certain actors. You know, whatever the nature of the criminal object is you know we can argue about that but it's a but it's like it's a continuing conspiracy that begins in the summer of 2016 stretches into the summer of 2017 and has the special counsel join it while it's already in play and then the special counsel personnel serve to perpetuate it and keep it going okay well you know that continue you know the the statute of limitations for a conspiracy doesn't begin to run until the conspiracy ends so, so right. as long as that conspiracy is one continuous conspiracy and it continues to operate into 2017 and maybe 2018, the statute of limitations is the statute of limitations not yet running. It could, it could How be, particular does it the go back to mid year exam actually beyond Crossfire Hurricane because there's so many of the same actors? Yeah. involved you know yeah, and yeah, it was, but it that's, such an abrupt switch from mid-year exam to, to crossfire hurricane yeah but that's not about donald trump you know you have to maintain i mean the object of the conspiracy has to be the same and mid-year exam is not about donald trump no but i mean it was to cover up what they did in mid-year exam they shifted to donald trump you know and, and it's sort of i could see that being i don't know it maybe it's too difficult but that's what I was going to ask is how explicit, like how defined does your objective have to be? So is it just hurt Trump? Does it have to be more explicit than that, more detailed? Well, the objective of the conspiracy has to be a crime. And, and that's where you begin to stumble across, okay, well, what statutes are we talking about? Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, you have, you know, this crazy statute for conspiracy to defraud the government, you know, the, the, it was a special. It was the Mueller special counsel who brought out, you know, conspiracy to interfere in the election laws. Um, uh, so, so that's really kind of. I mean, that is an uh, an esoteric debate on 
finer points of various federal statutes that might or might not apply uh, that I don't think really can get into here. I think there were there's some new kind of light bulbs went off in my head in the last two weeks with new evidence that we just learned about that would or could support uh, a conspiracy, an inside the government conspiracy that may even have interacted with the outside the government ongoing conspiracy. Uh, the first of those was uh, were the notes of that first week of March 2017 meeting between the FBI, the higher-ups of the FBI, with the new regime of the DOJ. Try, in, um, the immediate thing that precipitated that was what the hell is Trump talking about when he said his wires were tapped. Uh, and so the FBI... No, that was actually... That briefing is... Oh, no, it's two days after. Yeah, it was like uh, first week of March. And those people got the... And and I think somebody uh, who was asked about it at this trial said, yes, we did sit down and prepare in advance to work out our talking points. Uh, They got together and put together a presentation for the DOJ people explaining what they'd been up to. And the thing that jumped out at me from those notes more than anything else was the discussion of the crown, uh, their crown source, uh, which is Christopher Steele. And they broadly described him as being a the reliable source of a lot of the information that went into Crossfire Hurricane and held him out to be like pristine. They gave him a capital C crown title. Uh, When, in fact, that meeting happened less than two months after they'd interviewed, they, the FBI, and interviewed Igor Danchenko for three days. And Danchenko had totally debunked everything that, quote, Crown had told the FBI. And so who somebody in that meeting knew that. And probably all of them knew that by then. Because they were, and so they were misrepresenting to the DOJ what they had done and what it was based on and how pristine and valid their investigation had been and by the book, so to speak. Um, That's a conspiracy. It could be a conspiracy to obstruct justice, a conspiracy to defraud the United States. Uh, The second thing we heard this week was the possibility. uh, You need more hard evidence, but the possibility that people inside the FBI at the higher levels knew that the Alpha Bank story, the narrative, was coming from two or more different places on paper 
but they all it was all the same. It was all Jaffe and his crew. So Sussman brings it to them, and they have Jaffe, confidential human source, that they would bounce things off of the the, the field investigators would bounce things, you know, ask questions, uh, and he would submit further information to keep to do nothing more than keep the investigation going, and the higher ups then actively obstructed the field investigators into learning what was really going on. That again, it's obstruction of justice, it's a conspiracy. So there in that short period of time, uh, January, February, March, 2017, it sounds, smells like a conspiracy. And that conspiracy is intersecting possibly with what was going on with the Clinton campaign. Agreed. I forget who it was, but somebody made a really good point yesterday. And as we learned, the Alpha, Alpha, the Alpha investigation was closed January 18th, 2017. And then we see this briefing in March where they're briefing it like it's, like it's still active, like there's still some open questions around these Alpha al- allegations. And somebody pointed out, which I think was underrepresented yesterday, you know, they weren't briefing the Obama Department of Justice by March 2017. They were briefing the Trump officials, the Trump Department of Justice, like it was still open, like it was still um, like a credible allegation out there, which is incredible to me. Well, well, that's the, yes and no. Remember, Sessions had recused four days earlier, so he wasn't there. Dana Buente, who's always kind of been a neutral politically, bounced around the department as a career official, had been a U.S. attorney in the Obama administration in the Northern District or in the Eastern District of Virginia, I believe, and and was a short period of time was the acting attorney general after Sally Yates was fired and before Sessions was confirmed. Um, So so Buente's not really a Trump guy. And then also in the room were Tosh or Tasha or Tanya Gahar or whatever her name is. She's a holdover. She's a career official holdover. She was a, a, a she was in the deputy attorney general's office for for Sally Yates. Scott Schools, who was just the longest serving career official in the Department of Justice. You know, so he's an eight-year veteran of the Obama administration, and you know, had been in the Department of Justice for 35 years. So, and I, I don't remember. I remember those three individuals specifically from the Department of Justice, because I remember seeing notes, you know, attributed to them. You know, those are exhibits that uh, that uh, Sussman's defense is going to going to bring in, and, and one or more of those people are going to testify. So, yes, this is the Trump administration no there aren't any real trumpy appointees in doj yet in place running the thing good point yeah you're good point let me add though don't forget there was only two weeks later about that comey went to congress and said i've been authorized by the doj to report publicly that the Trump, that we're investigating Trump campaign relations with 
Russia. So who is DOJ at that point? It's the people in that meeting. So he got, he and his people got the go-ahead from the people in those, that meeting by misrepresenting the status of their investigation and what they had done. He got the go-ahead to keep open the crossfire hurricane that they had started, even though they had run everything to ground by then. Uh, he, he kept it open. And that, you know, led to, you know, we saw it. Well, let me pick up with a question right there. And, and J.H., I, I see you have your hand up. I'll, I'll come to you in just a moment. But as it relates to what you just talked about, I mean, by March, no doubt by March, if not earlier, they had debunked everything. I mean, they had a mountain of exculpatory information and everything that was supposed to be uh, damning was really falling apart. I mean, they had the Danchenko interviews. They had, you know, I won't go through the litany of, of issues. So if you were going to look at this and, and look at somebody like Comey's action specifically, going to Congress to brief, you know, that they had an investigation into Trump, you know, later leaking the memos, if you're going to look at that as the nexus for a potential conspiracy charge, what what would you call that? Would you say that's obstruction of, of justice? Would you, I mean, what kind of statutes might come into play? I would call it obstruction of justice and conspiracy to defraud the United States. Okay. Thank you. JH, what's up, man? Well, I have a question that kind of shifts gears back to this new, new CHS. So I don't want to interrupt this flow if, if you're not ready to switch topics. So if, if not, just come back to me. <laughs> oh, we were just talking about all the CHSs and DMs and Fool Nelson's top of this game as usual. So maybe that'll be a, a good, nice little segue. Go ahead. Well, uh, Technofog has a new article up that's only maybe a couple hours old now. Um, but he has the transcripts from when they were talking about this new, new T, uh, CHS, and there's some interesting things in there. And one of them is that it's a he, so that probably precludes uh, Elgin Camp. Um, this person also went to the Washington Post. But the really interesting thing is that before this person went to the Washington Post, they were speaking to a representative from the Trump campaign because that representative from the Trump campaign wanted to explain their side of the story. So it's who in the world would be in with the Georgia Tech people, but also be familiar with someone on the Trump campaign. Yeah. So you just hit the nail on the head on what we were just talking about in, in direct messages. And I took some notes on this earlier because that, that was very interesting. And yes, my understanding is it's not LG and Camp. It doesn't fit with the descriptions or the timeline uh, to my understanding. But yes, there is apparently an additional confidential human source. I don't believe it's Rodney Joffe. It's not LG and Camp. But there is an additional confidential human source. And the most uh, the, the part that I keyed in on and wrote down in my notes... Um, was what you just re referenced. Apparently, before going to the FBI with information, this individual reached out. My, the way I wrote it down was he reached out to the Trump organization to get their take and their explanation 
on what had happened. So immediately I was thinking Lichtblau, to be honest with you, because to I know Lichtblau uh, was kind of making some of those inquiries. So I, I don't think it's Lichtblau anymore. To me, this but sounds like an IT person that we've never heard of. To be I, I, I agree yeah. with that. So my secondary analysis, and, and I think uh, everybody kind of agrees with what you're saying, is somebody that has some technical skills but probably has uh, ties to the media is the way I would, I, I would probably categorize it. So, yeah, I mean, it's open for speculation right now. I don't know if anybody else wants to offer their thoughts on that. Um, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be important to figure out who that is, though. Well, did Techno write like who he thinks it is in his in his uh, Substack? I didn't uh, read it. Yet. No, he he ends with who is this CHS? We need to figure Ooh. out who it is, basically. <laughs> so okay, then I won't. Oh, I won't, oh actually, it looks I like he's give added. It away, uh, it's actually <laughs> it looks like he's added and. Uh, <laughs> speculating that it's potentially David Court. Bing bong. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> no, yeah, actually, like <clears throat> that's really good because like Techno was talking about that uh, that uh, t- that Corn eventually like was interviewed by the Washington Post. And if you read that that EC that ten twenty three that Trifoletti from the Springfield office says that this guy was talking to the Washington Post, but it's like it looks clearly like it's like a like it's a media dude. And obviously, corn. So I was like looking through like the. Um, actually, I wasn't looking through. I was just looking through my memory. But uh, I was I was looking through like so like the dates of like report like one twelve, which is like the alpha report of Steele, is nine twenty two, and that was the same exact day that Steele met with corn, and Isakoff and all those idiots. So. Um, Corn's, I corn's think that's the, like a really good hypothesis. Corn's the worst out of all of them, so I wouldn't have oh, yeah. to pass him. <laughs> so like 923, Isakoff ran his Yahoo story about Carter Page. Then um, I'm sure like that date, like so what happens was like 922 is like the Simpson date of, of 112 and 97 and a couple other, or 111 and 112 being dated for, from Steele. And those reports ended up with David Korn redacted um, when Steele met with him. Then those reports didn't end up in Baker's office because Korn went and met with him like 1026 or something like that. But in that interim period, I'm sure Korn had those reports and he could have gone and been a CHS to this Tripoletti dude who was in Springfield um, and was probably talking to Dagon and all this. Because I don't know, I forget what Korn's, what, what the major reveal of Korn's article, Mother Jones' article, was like in October and whenever that was. But it makes a lot of sense that it would be Korn. It's definitely a reporter, probably. And, I mean, we talked about McIntyre, uh, Mike McIntyre of New York Times potentially being a, a CHS as well. But I think Techno's got something. I think yeah, that, I, that, that could be it. Yeah, I, I, you know, Corn really fits the profile of, of, you know, somebody who would be willing to walk a two-way street with the FBI over a long, long period of time. In other words, he's the recipient of leaks, that, that the FBI wants to get out. And at the same time, he's supplying things he's hearing 
to the FBI on a you know, CHS basis. Uh, That tends to be more opinion reporters like Korn or investigative reporters like Korn rather than, you know, beat reporters like, you know, some of the other, like somebody like Lick Battles is more of a beat reporter. Uh, The the investigative reporters that tend to operate more independently of whatever news organization they work for, um, they... Uh, are more likely to drift in and out of the orbit of you know law enforcement and the intelligence community. It also makes like a lot of sense. Like that Alpha report didn't make its way to the FBI for for or at least Crossfire Hurricane. It didn't get a Crossfire Hurricane until Baker got it from Corn. But for it to get to the Alpha investigation through Corn through that way, but I mean it basically wasn't. I don't. I mean the reporting wasn't. I guess given, but I guess corn being interviewed by the FBI and making it way, making its way through that way makes a lot of sense. But uh, I wonder what that 302 would look like with David corn and how that would match up with report 112. Yeah. Well, I mean like you look at like 112, like compared to like uh, some of the like tea leaves, um, uh, alpha bank, like background stuff. And like, there's like this, a dot pdf with like avon and and fridman and all this stuff but it's like very similar to like the berkowitz white paper as well like Steele didn't do that it was basically a fusion report i mean that that would seem to tie up like a really nice conspiracy if if it's david corn i mean that's oh yeah (laughs) particularly at that point no doubt right yeah i mean he, he if he's and on that TV makes <laughs> he's going well first of all like he's going again he's going outside his handler like if Tripoletti's his handler it's the same thing with with Jaffe he's going outside of his handler too when he goes to Baker probably so it's like a very similar situation and like they did that twice basically with with Jaffe going to Sussman then Jaffe going to Grasso then if corn went to Trifoletti, then corn went to Baker. Like, how dumb is Baker? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Yeah, uh, uh, let, me, let me interject something, though, here on the way uh, CHS's work with the Bureau. Um, you know, a CHS is kept in what they call an open state if the CHS is regularly providing information and, and is expected to regularly provide information. Uh, because, you know, then the Bureau, you know, they maintain this relationship. Uh, that the you know internally the bureau agent the handler has to be accountable for has to you know report on CHS activities on a periodic basis under the diog, um, and and uh, but a CHS that goes inactive and that you don't hear anything from or they change positions they change jobs they're not in a position to give the same information they could before they they're closed out. That doesn't mean they're closed out forever. It just means that they're no longer an active CHS. They can be, they can be reopened later on when they have. And, and sometimes the reopening is simply in response to they bring you something. They bring you something. Hey, here I've got this. Okay, let me reopen you. You know, gets the paperwork done, reopens the CHS, takes the information from them, maybe pays the CHF as CHS if that's the arrangement, and then the CHS goes away and they might close them out again. You know, it, it, it this can happen repeatedly just because somebody is a chs doesn't mean they're always a chs 
They could also change handlers sometimes. It was just a matter of, you know, practical, physical convenience. The agent moves to the other side of the country or changes divisions or doesn't do that kind of work anymore, or the CHS moves. Then they get a new handler. Now, that's all, that's all kind of done on an official basis. It's not done, you know, just ha- haphazardly. You know, the CHS doesn't pick his new handler. So that Corn might have given whatever information to somebody other than who had been identified as his handler in the past doesn't necessarily mean that Corn had gone around as handler. This is like another like confidential human source appeed with Steele going to another confidential human source who is like David Corn, which is a little bit ridiculous. But uh all this is, which is awesome. Are there are there any special rules about having uh, CHSs who are also journalists? I'm assuming that you know if the if the news outlet has any sort of salt, they'd have a problem with it, but maybe not the FBI. I don't know why the FBI would. I mean, why would they turn down information? No, yeah, there's like specifically like in the Diog or no, it's actually I think like the D- some of the DOJ thing of like of using media as a CHS or whatever. But that was also like updated, like September two thousand sixteen, randomly. I looked that up. Totally randomly. (laughs) No idea. But I thought that was cool. I think Techno might be onto something with that. Um. I was trying to think. So, I mean, Lickblau is like a witness in the trial. I wonder if Corn's going to be called in in Iggy's trial eventually. That would be awesome. See, it would be really interesting if they were able to cross-examine Lickblau and see if he ever talked to David Corn or some of these other characters because we know that a lot of these individuals were actually working together. I mean, they weren't competitive with one another. We know that Franklin Four. And Lick Blau were, were actually pretty close, closely working on the same matter. We know, you know, Fusion GPS was having these meetings in like taverns and whatever, and they would just like, or even at Fusion headquarters, and they would just invite like a whole bunch of journalists over. Um, so it'd be really interesting to know whether Lick Blau has some knowledge of some of this other stuff. Uh, Four hosted a meeting with Fusion GPS at his own house for one of these meetings. Yeah. I'm just wondering how, like, if it was if it was corn, like, why they use this like random guy in Springfield as his handler? But I mean, it, even beyond the conspiracy charge for these actors, I mean, that's another instance, if it's true, where the FBI is has done something just truly inexplicable, and yet another instance where something didn't come up in IG Horowitz report. Um. And we're learning new information, which is inexcusable. Well, well, on that question, I'm going to guess that Springfield is part of the Chicago field office. No, they have have their own field office. No, it's probably an RA. I doubt it's a field office. No, I think Springfield has their own field office. It's SI at Springfield, Illinois. Well, there's only 54 field offices, and there's 94 judicial districts. So the the field offices are bigger than the judicial districts. Yeah, I know, but Springfield has a field office. Uh, Well, 
okay. Well, the the, the, the a, it, but but whoever the handler is for corn, supposedly, assuming supposedly that 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 guy might have been in Washington D.C. at some point. He might have developed that relationship with corn when he was at WFO or headquarters or whatever. Uh, doesn't you know? It doesn't mean it's just a random guy in Springfield. No, nah, he's been in Springfield for like a long time. I think he's like in Washington, maybe a long time ago. But he like runs like this actually InfraGuard, which is like uh, it's like a regional oh, thing. Okay. Yeah, I know what that. Okay. So so, so like I think it's mainly because it's like a private public relationship. Yeah, thing yeah. InfraGuard yeah. is something that the people that do that travel the country and they make connections in private industry. Yeah. On you know, on the, yeah, it's a public-private uh, ability for the bureau to tap into expertise in the private industry that it lacks within the bureau. Yeah, so like it seems like it's very similar to whatever Grasso was with NCFTA, which is like a relationship between private and right whatever. So I think that's how that was developed potentially. Yeah. So again, those you know the, those. Um, the, the 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 relationship between a CHS and a handler, that's just a kind of a it's a very and I can't really explain the reasons. I it's kind of just a quirky thing. Some agents are very good at developing sources and they develop a lot of sources over the course of their career. And some agents just don't have the interpersonal skill to convince people to become sources and they struggle throughout their entire career. They're all expected to do it. Every FBI agent expected to develop sources. That's part, part. That's a primary job skill, and just some are really good at it, and 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 some aren't. And so it's just sort of who knows, you know, how that introduction came to be made and the relationship came to be formed. Um, yeah, but it is what it is. Well, it's interesting because, like, I think like Corn uh, goes back like to the Valerie Plame thing, and and so is like. Empty Wheel was, like, big into that shit, so I wonder if they were communicating about that back in the day. That, that would be 2016. That would be icing on the cake. 2016, because, like, Marcy talks about, like, having sources or whatever. I'm like, oh, I bet it was corn. But I don't know. That's a speculation. Yeah. Uh, hey, Brian, I, I'll take a couple speakers, or other questions here, Brian. I don't know if you have a question or a comment. Go ahead. All right, uh, Brian. Not, maybe you're probably away from your microphone. Um, but yeah, if you guys have anything else, go ahead. I have a question. Okay. What What is the prediction about Grasso? What's he going to talk about tomorrow? Man, Grasso, I, I find it is going to be really, really interesting. So obviously, I, I think I tweeted that out. But like, he's obviously at the center of all this, right? And you know, now we've introduced all these confidential human sources, and obviously Rodney Joffe as well. And a lot of what we've seen from Grasso doesn't make sense. We've had certain emails introduced where he's communicating with Allison Sands and some of the others, and what he's saying is obfuscating the truth or it's misrepresenting it entirely. And, you know, there's a couple emails. I mean, there's several emails. And what I'm really concerned about is that, it's that Tom Grasso is a conspirator with these guys, and he is going to go in there 
and try to cover for him. And obviously he's a defense witness. He is going to try to provide some cover. Or, or I shouldn't say he's going to try to, but they think he will. Um, but, yeah, I'm really, really concerned that he actually has a personal interest in this and that he might be under scrutiny for potential prosecutions. And I, I understand that maybe that doesn't drive with him, you know, taking advantage of not speaking or, or what have you. But um, obviously he's interfacing with all these confidential human sources, you know, Rodney Joffe, uh, David Dagan, uh, potentially Elgene Camp as well. Uh, he's, he's volunteering information left and right, uh, which is basically like offering Rodney Joffe as a subject matter expert offering Rodney Joffe as a confidential human source um, and then offering additional IP addresses, which is, uh, you know, it's just, it, it's kind of crazy. And, and he's continuing to push these claims. And one, one point I forgot to mention earlier, which I th- thought was really, really important. I think it was yesterday we had testimony about a confidential human source that engaged a technical expert or something to that effect, that a technical expert had been engaged who reviewed the data, who said it was incomplete, but it was plausible. And we actually got testimony on that today. And apparently this technical expert uh, is connected to David Dagan. So, like, it's totally ridiculous. Like, there's no justification for how this happened at all. Um, And a lot of people... I think intentionally we're looking the other way. So I'll have to find that in the transcripts. I want, I want to get it right, but um, that's going to be something I think everybody will be interested in looking for. It would be uh, pretty strange if the seventh floor was talking directly to someone like, uh, um, like Sands, you know, so I, you know, my suspicion maybe is someone like uh, Grasso is is acting as a liaison between the seventh floor to the people who are tasked with all these individual things. You know, someone has to fill that role. Yeah, and uh, I mean, we are getting, you know, second level type speculation here, but I know Grasso is pretty close with Andrew McCabe. And, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know if there's something there or not. But you talking with Joe Pienko a lot, or is that someone... Uh, someone was someone was doing a lot of communications with Joe Pianca. I think that's Heidi. That's right. Yeah. Chip, will will Grasso if if Grasso says I can't divulge who my source is, can he get away with that in this trial? No. No, he's he's on the stand as as a as a government employee. You know, he, he I assume he's still an agent. I don't know that for a fact, I guess. But if he's still an agent, he's on the stand as a government employee. That that privilege doesn't wrestle with him; it wrestles with the government. He, he has hope. moved on. He is no longer with the FBI. Yes. Uh, well, then I mean, he probably could try to, uh, you know, refuse to answer, but he's subject to be cited for contempt. Doesn't have a legal privilege that I can think of that, that would apply. Okay, uh, Brian, I had you a speaker. I don't know if you're back, but if you have a question or comment, go ahead. Oh, well, I'm, I'm only going to take a couple questions here, guys. I uh, I don't want to stay on too long. I 
you know, we'll see what happens tomorrow. Uh, Licklow and, and Grasso, if they get him on the stand, uh, I don't even know if I'll be able to cover it all because I am flying out tomorrow, but maybe I'll do a spaces chat from the airport while I'm waiting. Cause I do have a, like a three hour lay- layover. So, uh, let's see here. We'll take rough cut and then I, I might end this. If nobody else has thoughts, um, rough cut. Hey guys. Up? So hopefully this doesn't extend it too much for you, but it goes, I got a comment and then it'll lead into, I think our question for ships. So we started off this, this trial with the FBI being kind of take, you know, being framed as being taken advantage of and now we're into a point where it seems like they're being shown to be kind of like bumbling idiots with the way they did some things as well as being you know seventh floor excited doing these things controlling it and keeping some other people in the dark and we talk about conspiracy so there's been a lot of talk about like statue of limitations so some of so after all this sort of ends and trump ends up in the white house and all this other stuff you then end up with the Mueller investigation and some of these current people in the FBI that are part of the crossfire hurricane that are part of, you know, all of what we're talking about here with Strzok and Lisa page, for example, some of these folks move on to the Mueller team. So does that extend any potential statutes limitation into, because they join that and that lasts for a while longer, whether it be obstruction or conspiracy, I, I don't know how that would play out or if Durham would even willing to, to track that that far. But I just, wonder if that extends out those dates at all well i i think i would i would reverse that you know, just as a theoretical matter i would say the Mueller team joined the existing fbi operation in other words the Mueller prosecutors came over and just took over an existing fbi investigation they didn't start a new one um they just supplanted basically FBI management, you know, they, they, they took over from Andy McCabe, um, you know, and, and, and Rod Rosenstein's explanation for why he did it, you know, that was one of his justifications was, you know, Andy McCabe had become a madman and I had to get him out of the middle of the investigation and, and, and sideline him. And the only way to sideline him was to, you know, turn it over to a special counsel. Right. But the ultimate, uh, but real quick, but the ultimate subject of the investigation of who they were going after Trump, he still becomes the injured party going from pre-election to post-election. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and my point would be, you know, the, to, to the extent you could divide, to the extent you could define a criminal conspiracy, a conspiracy, a, a conspiratorial objective with, or, or, or yeah, within a federal statute, it continued because the FBI personnel involved continued, and then the Mueller people just became the supervisors to the extent they joined that effort knowingly, rather than you know put the brakes to it as you know Barr did, and 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 uh, you know, then you could say that you know the conspiracy continued. It was just joined by the special counsel participants, um, you know and. As I've said, you know, I don't know, in space chats or, or wherever, but but I've you know observed a few times, you know, that it didn't take, in my view, the Mueller people very long to figure out that most of what the FBI had done for a year was garbage, and and sort of like the last bullet unfired was to put pressure on General Flynn to cooperate. And they, you know, they used his supposed lies in his January 2017 interview to pressure him in the fall of 2017. Remember, nothing had happened 
between the interview and and the fall of 2017. In fact, it was reported at one point that the FBI was not going to recommend prosecution. And then the Mueller special counsel's office took over, and then now suddenly they're going to proceed with the prosecution of General Flynn. And I've said all along, they threatened his son if he didn't cooperate. And I said all along, they thought if anybody could prove or anybody could help us prove the existence of a Trump-Russia collusion, it'll be General Flynn because he'll be in the middle of it. Okay, and 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 they didn't they didn't get it. So. When they realized, and I don't think it took them more than six months, that it, they weren't going to get there. The special counsel's office was not going to prove a Trump-Russia collusion or conspiracy. They then switched gears and went for obstruction. And then the rest of everything the special counsel did was obstruction. But that's all, that's all about hamstringing Trump. Now, you know, then the, the, but that kind of leads you back to a question, okay, is that a definable federal crime, or is that just a continuing dirty political trick campaign? Uh, deleting a couple dozen phones—that's a—that's a crime. <laughs> no, no, no question about it. And and more importantly, it's government actors using their official positions. So, yeah, that, that's what I was—I would raise. You—you you have an ongoing conspiracy to cover up what had happened, including writing letters in mid-2018 to the FISA court, uh, basically lying once more about the evidence that they had to support the uh, warrants. Uh, There are a number of overt acts that themselves are independent crimes that took place in two, as late as 2018 uh, and maybe later, uh, that consisting of essentially covering up past crimes. Um, we'll go to, got to go to Durham, right? I mean, that's, that's a must. What's up, man? Hey, man. Hey, thanks so much for all the tweeting from D.C. I'm so stoked you're there. It's really awesome. <laughs> Um, I was thinking about your tweet earlier where you say you uh, ran into Durham today, and I was wondering if you could just kind of describe what that was like, and then also if you're getting any kind of uh, feeling of the dynamic between the prosecution team and uh, the jury, and similarly like, with the defense. Along those lines, I'm kind of curious if you've been recognized, too. <laughs> yeah, no, no, uh, nobody's talked to me at all. <laughs> um, so I sat in the media room with like 25 people, and nobody, nobody asked me anything. Um, and then, obviously, I sat in the courtroom today. I hadn't been recognized, nothing like that. So, um, you know, I'm a big deal here on Spaces Chats, but, uh, you know, my, my influence and, and people, you know, the knowledge of me does not extend outside, like, two or 300 people. So, um, note of that. Um, as it relates to Durham, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, we're all standing outside the courtroom. Um, first thing this morning, I was standing outside the courtroom, and here comes John Durham strolling down the long hallway and we just lock eyes and he just stares me down all the way till he gets to the courtroom door. Um, and then he walks in and that was it. Um, so then later on, uh, after lunch, uh, again, everybody's standing outside the door. Uh, this time the doors are locked. So we're all just standing there and it's John Durham standing right in front of me, two feet across the hallway. Next to him is, 
is Al Gore. Um, some of the others, like Shaw, are standing right uh, to the right a little bit, and they're more conversing with each other. But Durham's not talking to anybody. Like, he was on his cell phone a little bit. But, uh, yeah, we just stood there uh, for a while uh, just like that. So that was, that was pretty fun. I, that was cool. I got a kick out of that. Um, Did you ask him what his purview was? <laughs> I I did not work up the the courage Come to speak to him at all. I know it. If I was on my way out, I would have. But uh, yeah, I, it was pretty fun. And then your question about his interactions with the the jury, or at least his team. I don't know. I you know, uh, I I they're 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 not speaking to the jury or anything. Like they're speaking to the judge. Um, there's not a whole lot of like colorful interaction, you know, with the jury with hand gestures or anything like that. Um, Al Gore's got a lot of charisma. Uh, he just speaks really cleanly and precisely, and he catches things. Like he, you know, he knows how to emphasize his points and kind of let it hang for a second so that it sinks in. Mm-hmm. So Al Gore's really effective. Um, yeah, and then other than that, I mean, Durham. Durham's just hanging out at the back of a long table. Uh, every now and then they pass notes between each other, and Durham will look at it and write something and pass it back. Um, but other than that, I mean, I never heard, never heard the guy actually say anything today. Cool. Thanks, man. I, I, uh, I've, I'm along the lines of everybody else, but with, with all the things that have been coming out, it seems like there's, uh, it seems like it, it's pretty clever because the, uh, through this single, very simple indictment and trial, the FBI and so many things have come to light out of it. So uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's pretty cool, man. So have a safe trip home, and thanks again for doing what you're doing. Yeah, yep. thank you. I appreciate that. Let me confirm that just looking at the transcript, the, the one lawyer on Durham's team that jumps out as the best trial lawyer is Al Gore. The, head, the, head and shoulders above the others. Absolutely. 100% agree with that. You know, I wanted to mention one thing. Like, we always talk about this former CHS that, that McCabe shut down or whatever. I was, yeah. like, reading those footnotes again, and, it, like, it specifically says that it was never opened in Crossfire Hurricane. And I'm like, I wonder if this source was opened in another investigation. Well, it does say it, the information came to another field office, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um. <clears throat> I don't know. Yeah, I. Yeah, it's interesting the way they they worded it because it was like it wasn't as far as they they as Horowitz knew he wasn't open for Crossfire Hurricane specifically and like Ship was saying like maybe it was open for something else. Well, like it it raises the question for me whether the Trump the list of Trump associates that are mentioned in those footnotes that ultimately went to Peter Strzok in early August. If that's the same list and that's the same file that was sent to Novik, I mean, it's it's a bombshell. Like, there, there's something – it's another piece where it's like there's no way they could have known that something wasn't going on um, to have that in early August. And then, obviously, all the other information that comes in related to Alpha and, and everything else going on. I mean, that you know, that would be inexplicable, and I think that's what happened. Um so I don't know. Don't know if I was going to make a. No, yeah, I that, think it's but... probably the same list. Like, I mean, I, did you already talk about Novik at all? Yeah, I talked about him a little bit. Yeah, 
what did he, I mean, was he, so did he look, I don't know what, what controversy happened. It's like 302 or whatever, but so he pretty much hates Jaffe, hopefully. Yeah. They got some <laughs> animosity between them. Um, I mean, he was like, he was like a solid witness for the purpose that he was there, which is to kind of impugn the, the data that was provided. Um, yeah. I don't think he's ever testified in, in a court before, which is pretty evident on cross-examination. Um, the thing about the 302, I mean, the, the defense was trying to shake him up a little bit, and they kind of made a mountain out of a, a molehill. And, um, you know, this whole thing about the terminology around selectors kind of set him off a little bit. And it, it was kind of overblown in, in the tweets that I saw. I mean, it, it didn't have any impact on the courtroom or anything. But, um, you know, he said, yeah, I never said this. But later on, he clarified, like, okay, well, there's like a, a terminology issue between what's in the notes and my understanding of what a selector is. So it wasn't that big a deal. Got it. Was like when he went through like the company breakdown, was he like, this is just like complete like uh, shell game basically? Yeah, it did sound really suspicious. And you know what? He, he was a good speaker. He laid it out really cleanly. Um, I also think he gave Durham an, an absolute gift and I mentioned this earlier, but he he gave this analogy, and I, I assume he came up with it on his own, where he said, like, Joffe tasked me with this, and I was really uncomfortable. I've never seen anything like this before in my employment. And Joffe tasked me to dig into these people, and he said, it would be like if you had a contract uh, with satellites to monitor floodplains. And uh, that's all well and good, but then you know, you take that access through those satellites, instead of looking at floodplains, you decide you're going to spy on somebody and look in their backyard. And he offered that as an analogy. And the way he described it was really clean. Like, it was, it was that, good. Yeah, that makes sense because he's like an ex-NASA guy, I yeah. think, or yeah, NRO or something like that. So that makes sense. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Um... <laughs> I see we have a few more requests to speak. I, I have to apologize, guys. I'm uh, I'm a little bit tired, a little bit jet lagged, a little bit traveling and everything else. So um, I'm probably going to end the chat here. I, I'm going to go ahead and plan on doing a chat tomorrow. Uh, we'll have a, a couple interesting testimonies to discuss. I'm going to be traveling a little bit, and I know I have a layover of like three hours. So um, I have nothing else to do. I'm going to grab a couple brews, and uh, I'll sit down and, and do it like a Twitter spaces. And then, you know, if testimony is really boring, we'll just do a straight Q&A. If testimony is interesting, it'll probably be a little bit like tonight, but maybe I'll be able to take a few more questions. So, Do you have a, an approximate time for that layover? Uh, not really. <laughs> it, it might be like 8 o'clock Eastern time, um, maybe even a touch earlier. I'll try, I'll try to set up – I'll take a look at my itinerary and I'll uh, – I'll schedule the spaces. So, alrighty. Um, thank you to everybody for coming. Obviously, thank you to our outstanding speakers. As always, they always bring it. It's always good. Um, it's the only place that you get to talk about Russiagate like this. So, uh, hopefully, everybody enjoys it. Um, yeah, I mean, thank you to everybody for coming, and I hope everybody has a good night. We'll try to continue doing these spaces chats whenever we can 
whenever we can discuss things and, and highlight research and analysis. And um, obviously a lot of this, I mean, if you've been following us for a while, a lot of this is stuff that you already knew. And that, that goes to people like Fool Nelson, who's done just incredible research for, for months and years now. Um, and then, I mean, you just saw it in courtroom today and it was like, well, Fool Nelson tweeted out like eight months ago. I already knew that. Um, so that it was good to see people surprised today. And I was like, no, 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 like you, you don't follow Fool Nelson. That's, that's your fault. Uh, we didn't so even get into idiots. we didn't get into we didn't get into Joffy's filing that had all everybody's tweets. Yeah, in fuck, it. fuck <laughs> Rodney Joffy. <laughs> we discussed a little bit yesterday. I wasn't there. We? Fuck Rodney Joffy. Actually, there like, actually, here's like an Easter egg at the end. Like, uh, I don't know why Marcy keeps on trying to make me like an associate of of, of Jeff Jensen, but here's the story, guys. <laughs> here's the scoop. Jeff Jensen. Used to work to a very for a very close fem- family member of mine, and that's it. Like a long time ago, I mean, they may have like still be like in contact and stuff like that. But like, I feel like Ship and and King, like I think she's like trying to make it out, like oh my god, there is like something information being passed or something. But I feel like Ship and King would know, like when these dudes talk, they would never even think about asking that person about an open case because you would never want to put yourself or that other person in that position. And that's like the stance at all times. So that's it. It's like, if they're like, yeah, there, there is like a, a tie there, but none of that shit would have, that would have never even came up. Like you would never like an FBI agent would never like, or like the way it should be is like, if you're out and you're not working on that case, you shouldn't ask like, what the hell you wouldn't even want to put somebody in that position. So, I mean, that's all it is. And uh, that's it, Marcy. Sorry that I that I, I was born. Apology accepted on, on her behalf. Thank you, yes. <laughs> Maybe she'll listen to this at the very end. But yeah. if not, uh, I'm going to have Jeff Jensen file. Uh, um, uh, I'm going to have him... Uh, uh, what's the word? Like, uh, get, get her on File recount. a motion on my behalf. Just have him enter that case and just have her, her brain explode. <laughs> Even though I've never talked to the guy at all, so maybe I just have to do that. <laughs> all righty, guys. On that note, that's a good that's a good note to leave on. Um, yeah, I mean, thank you to everybody, obviously. And uh, like I said, we'll, I'll plan on doing a chat tomorrow. We'll try to continue doing these. Hopefully... I'll get an opportunity to, to head out to the Danchenko trial and maybe the Joffe trial someday. And uh, I'll do more live tweeting and uh, we'll see how that, we'll see how that works out. So, all righty guys, have a good night. See you, man. See you. See you. Adios.